0: Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So if chapters were coins, this chapter would be the flip side of the same coin of chapter 12, the chapter where we are told of the call of Abram. And because of this, there are many similarities in the language between these two chapters. As an example, in chapter 12, God tells Abram to leave Haran to a land that he would show him, which is the same thing that he tells Abraham here. And in both chapters, Abraham obeys the command of God. And like with chapter 12, we are challenged by the reality of God in this chapter. There in chapter 12, we are challenged by the reality that God chooses people. That his call is not just a generic call for all people. He sets his love and his affection on specific people people who were, more often than not, very openly flawed. And Abraham was no exception. And this verse, this chapter, begins with a verse that's not only challenging, but in, in our modern understanding of God, very controversial. What are we supposed to make of this? God-tested Abraham thing. Are we really supposed to think that God doesn't desire us to have our best life now? That he would knowingly, willingly inflict pain and suffering into our lives? Because this is not the God that has been preached to us. This is not the God that we have been promised. And this is not the God that most so-called evangelicals believe in. Their God is a God who is an equal opportunity God, a fair God, the one that loves all people exactly the same, the desires all to come to faith and repentance in him. And once you make that good choice, he will give you the desires of your heart. He, that God, is a God that is concerned with this life, this life world this existence and so you are promised to have a happy marriage a great job a wonderful family and a happily ever after life but that is not the true and living god the god that saves sinners the god that gives perfect and wondrous gifts But at the same time, this is the same God that tested Abraham and will test you too. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, doesn't the Bible say that God doesn't test us? No. No. The verse that you're thinking about there is James 1.13 that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Tempting, testing, what's the difference? Well, the difference is twofold. The first is the testing that is from God, is from God. And tempting is of ourselves. And the second thing is that there is a reason for the testing. And the reason for the tempting are both one and the same. They're both given us to prove something. The testing that happens from God, that is of God, happens, and it happens to prove our faith. Prove our faith? Yes, prove our faith but not prove your faith to God. He has given us that faith, as told to us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He knows the quality and the strength of the faith that he has given you. And he knows the importance of that faith as well, as told to us in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, which says his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Who called us by His one His wondrous glory and goodness? Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine. The testing of the faith that is given you, again, is not for Him, not to show Him anything, prove anything to Him. It's for us. Listen to James how he begins his letter to that church. And ironically, he begins with this thing. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, verses 2 through 8. And just make sure that you're orthodox in your thinking concerning the last part of those verses. James is not saying that a true Christian is double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. What he is saying there are... Is that there are those that claim to be Christian and they are proven not to be? Wait for it. By testing. That testing that we are supposed to count as joy because that testing produces steadfastness. And again, what is it that James is saying that is being tested? (coughs) Your moral character? your stamina, your ability to take a licking and keep on ticking? No, it's your faith. It's your dependence on God. It is getting knocked down time and again being driven to the point of exhaustion, tears streaming from your eyes, heart being wrenched from your chest, stress being stacked upon you to the point that you are completely overwhelmed. And every time that you're knocked down, that the pain overwhelms you, that life seems to be crushing you, you roll over and you climb right back into the arms of your Savior. And this is all of God. And this is where and when your faith is proven. And God does this. This is important, dear ones, for you to grasp. Because we all know That very often, and even now, we have a bad understanding of the love that God has for us. What that love looks like. What it feels like. But it's important for us to know what that love is. Turn with me to the book of Job. Chapter 1. Right before Psalms. Job 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, verse 1. And that terminology, the one that you run across very often in the Old Testament, that fear of the Lord or fear God, what we need to understand by and large is that we don't understand that term. In our understanding in our culture today it's misunderstood or it's explained away it's mischaracterized as something that it doesn't mean when you read that phrase in the old testament what you should understand is that it is directly correlated with how faith is spoken of in the new testament so when you read it here when you read fear of the lord you should think faith and when you read faith In the New Testament, you should think, fear of the Lord. Job had faith in God. And God was confident in this fact. And yet, he tested this man. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And the reply by Satan to God was, Is very important. He said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and on all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in in the land. But you stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your faith. And what Satan thought of God, you need to understand this, what Satan thought of God, is revealed right there. And interestingly enough, when you read the book of Job, you will find that this is exactly the same thing that the friends of Job said of God. And what Satan said to God is that there is no worth in you. All the worth that is in you is found in the things that you give people. Satan said that the faith of Job wasn't found in God, that it was in the stuff of God, that the fear of the Lord that was made manifest in the works of Job, they were the effects of the gifts of God, that the faith of Job was based upon the things that he got from God. That Job acted the way that he did because of the stuff God gave him. And be clear, what is it? What gifts of God is he talking about here? What were the things that Satan was pointing at and saying, this is why Job fears you? Well, to begin with, it was the ease of life that he had. He was a wealthy and well-respected man. The second thing he pointed at was his children. He had ten grown children, And these are the gifts of God that he was pointing to as the reason for the fear of the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Verse 12. And the testing began. And dear saint, this is not a story. This is actual true account. Of events that actually took place. And Job had almost all of his wealth vanish in one afternoon. All gone. Think about it. Think of it. Think about losing your house, your car, your bank account, your retirement fund. All gone. And in the same day, he had all of his ten children taken from him as well. These were real people. Job was a real man. He loved every one of those ten kids the same way that you love yours. He had raised them from infancy, nurtured them, trained them, laughed with them, cried with them, lived life with them. And then they were taken from him in a single day. And in the midst of all of it, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Verses 21 and 22. We look at this and we would say, this is pretty bad. I mean, this is what we would call a severe test, maybe even a really hard test. But the testing of Job wasn't over yet. It wasn't even half over yet. Job hadn't gotten to the hard part yet. That comes in chapter 2. When we hear the same question come from God to Satan. And the same response by Satan to God. God. Now think about this. God once again willingly, knowingly, Intentionally presents his servant this man the one who had lost everything and everyone that he loved save his wife all in a single day he holds this man out to satan he's not protecting him from satan he's not telling satan back off he's not placing a hedge of protection around job he is holding this saint out to satan Placing Job on a platter in front of Satan. Placing a bullseye directly on his back. And what, what Satan said of Job, what he says to God, there is the same thing he said before. There's no value in you. There's only value in the things that you give. Job doesn't have faith. He has feelings. Maybe he just loves himself more than he loved his stuff or his family. He loves you, God, only because you protect that which he values most in life. Him. And God said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Verse 6. And Satan is off inflicting Job with the most painful and degrading of sores. And we are never told how long it was until his friends showed up on the scene. But it had to have been a couple months at least that he suffered this way. And what was the reaction of Job in all of this? Why me? This isn't fair. This This is not right. I don't deserve this treatment. Or if this is how God is going to treat me, I'm going to go check out that mole at God. because I think that his servants are a lot better treated. Or, or maybe he just didn't play, place all the blame at the feet of God because he was like most evangelicals nowadays, just thinking that God doesn't control things in life, that things just happen by luck or by chance or by my wise decisions and plan making. Most of us know, though, what he said to his wife, the one who had told him that he should just curse God and die. And really, we should actually repent of our thinking concerning that woman because this woman had lost all of her children, all of her security. And now she was watching the man that she loved being tested to the supreme. But to her, her, the faith that God had given Job, the fear that had been given, he had been given for the Lord, it came out. When he said to her, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil or disaster? Verse 10. And saint, no matter how old you are, you would do well to understand this. Look at verse 8, once again, in chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant? And right there, you need to understand that you need to insert your name. If you're a child of God, if you have been given the gift of faith, you need to understand that you should and can replace the name of Job right there with your name. Because this will be reality at some point in your life. Not might be. Not could be. This will be. And I'm not saying that God's going to test your faith the same way or to the same extent that he did Job. Because we are given the gift of faith. But it is God's faith. And he gives that faith as he sees fit. And this is what James was saying in those verses that we just read. This is going to happen to you. And when it does, we are to count it all joy. And we don't. We do everything that we can to get out of any pain or hard situation that we can. If we're in a difficult relationship, we want out. If we're in a hard or trying job, we flee as fast as we can. If we have the slightest ache or ailment, we self-medicate to dull our senses. Because really, reality is only for those that can handle drugs. And the reality that God has given for us is not fair. And this thinking, this thinking is central to today's scripture and those James verses that we read. Because we are supposed to count it all joy. But how? The how that we are to count it all joy. That is something I'm going to double back on in a minute. But first, let's take a look at how God tests this servant of his, this Abraham. Beginning in verse 3, back in Genesis 22. in the mind of Abraham at this time. We have to wonder, what was he thinking? What what is he thinking? What is he thinking about what he's been told that's going to happen to his beloved son? What did he tell Sarah? Did he tell Sarah? I mean, this was, after all, the promised son, the fulfilling of the promise of the heritage that God brought about. I mean, his conception, his birth was miraculous. And Isaac had to be the pride and joy of both of his parents. The writer of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke about what Abraham was thinking at this point in his life. He tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was, e- was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back, Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 through 19. Old Abe, old Abe knew what God meant when he told him to go sacrifice his son. He never thought for a second that Isaac was not a dead man walking. He knew. He knew When he packed up to leave and he grabbed that knife and he packed it for this trip, he knew that that knife would be the knife that he would plunge into the beating heart of his beloved son. And for three days he traveled with this beloved son until he got to the place that God showed him. How did Abraham not become jaded with God at all of this? I mean, first came the command to take his son to the place that he would show Abraham and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And then, after traveling those three days, God shows up again on the scene and tells him, points him to that place of suffering and anguish that would happen both for him and for Isaac. How could he reconcile that command with the promise that God had made concerning Isaac back in Genesis 17, verse 19, when he told him, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall name his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Somehow, some way, he continued to trust the Lord. Verses 6 through 9. And Abraham took the wood at the birth offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. So father and son, they continue on together. That son that had grown up trusting his father, looking to him for protection. The father that had taught him all about the things of life, all about the things of God. And now this son was confused. He knew what a sacrifice was. He had seen his dad offer a sacrifice to the Lord before. He understood the wood. He understood the reason for the fire and even for the reason for the knife. He understood why his father had brought those things. But there's something missing. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father and he said here I am my son he said behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering and abraham said god will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son so they went both of them together and when they came to the place of which god had told him abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, in our minds, very often we think that Isaac is this little kid. We think that he's this little youngster, eight years old, nine years old, when this all came about, but this is not reality. The fact that Abraham was able to lay all the wood necessary for the burnt offering on his back proves that he wasn't a little kid. And historians agree that at this time, Isaac was somewhere between 18 years old all the way up to his mid 20s. And so, when you think through these verses that we just read, this then forces us to understand something more about Isaac. He's a willing sacrifice, he's a willing participant in this endeavor. He had to submit to his dad tying him up. There's no way that a 100-year-old man is going to be able to tie up an 18-year-old man. He couldn't forcibly do that. Which brings us to the heartbreaking reality of verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, And the wording in that verse is no less exacting than the wording in verse 1 of chapter 21. That verse that tells us of the fulfilling of the promise to Sarah and Abraham. That says the Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Isaac had to submit to being tied up. He may have even helped his dad lay out the wood that he had carried on his back just to make sure that it burned right. And then he had to submit to his dad tying him up, probably even had to work with his dad to get him to lay on that wood. And all along, he had seen that knife, the one that his dad had purposely brought with him, that had to have been on his side the whole time. And he had to have watched as his dad grabbed hold of that knife with the purpose of obeying the Lord and slaughtering his son. And we think, this can't be right. I mean, doesn't God say in Proverbs six seventeen that he hates the hands that shed innocent blood? Doesn't he say that we are to rescue those that are being taken away to death in Proverbs twenty-four eleven? And isn't he specifically clear concerning the murder of children in worship in Leviticus twenty verses one through three? which tells us the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Yes! Yes! to all those verses, he said those things. And to gain a better understanding of what our text from today, we need to understand who this Molech was, who that false god is. Molech is the false god that is supposedly the god over prosperity and happiness in this life. And that's why sex was part of their worship of Molech. In the temple of Molech, there would be female prostitutes or male prostitutes that you would engage in worship to this false god. And just to ensure that you and your spouse would be prosperous in this life, when you had your first child, you would take that infant child and you would sacrifice him in a fire to Molech. And you're wondering, so you're, how, how then is what God has commanded Abraham to do here. How is this any different than that false worship or that false God? I mean, even if Isaac was a young man, isn't that just a technicality between the two? How could God, how could a good God ever command such an evil thing? How is this murder not evil? And the answer to that question is found in verses 11 and 12 of our chapter. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Who is it? Who is it that called from heaven to Abraham? We're told that it was an angel, but this isn't just an angel. This angel is, in fact, God himself speaking to Abraham, which is evidenced by the fact that he said, you have not withheld your son from me. But what are we supposed to think then? What are we supposed to think about all of this? Because these verses say that God learned that Abraham feared him. Doesn't this prove that God doesn't know everything? Doesn't this prove that old Abe schooled God, proved his faith, showed him something? No. Because we know this because the Bible is replete with verses that tell us that God does know everything, that he is omniscient, such as 1 John 3.20, which tells us that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Where we err is when we do not remember who we are and who God is. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the almighty. He is the holy, holy, holy God that is over all things. And we are the created who, even though we are created in the image of God, we cannot, and understand this, we cannot fully understand or comprehend God. And for this reason, God is forced to speak to us as a father to a small infant. We all understand that little kids, infants, they don't understand why they have to eat their vegetables, why they have to go to bed, why they need to get a shot, or even why the wheels on the bus go round and round. And we would do well to understand that God has to speak of himself in a manner that we can comprehend, just as we do to our infant children. He didn't learn anything here. What is proven here is the same thing that we're told of in verses 15 through 17. When it says, The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we think when we read these verses, we think that the act that Abraham did was rewarded. That not only did God learn something, but now he gives gifts because of the works that Abraham did which seems to bolster those arguments made in in James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It seems like this proves what we think from our text today. That God commanded Abraham and Abraham obeyed. God learned something and then God rewarded him for his good works. It seems this way until you read the rest of the, what James is saying and understand what he is meaning. He said there, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, verses 21 through 23. And what James is saying there is that the faith that God had given to Abraham, the fear that Abraham had for God, was made manifest. It was evidenced by his action, not the other way around. What James is saying is that this action demonstrated the reality of the faith that Abraham had been given. And then these promises to Abraham that are made to us in verses or given to us in verses 15 through 17 they're no different than the ones that were made to him on that day we were first called back in chapter 12 nothing had changed and yet everything changed you see because of this testing now 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 Abraham could understand better the reality of God. The God that gave him the faith to believe. The God that was making these promises to him. The same promises that he had made all those years ago. The promises never changed. That promise keeper, he never changed. But what changed was the understanding of the one who made these promises, who kept these promises within Abraham. And most importantly, I would submit to you that what God was commanding Abraham to place on the altar on that day, while it was his son and would be a representation of the price paid for the faith that that was given all the elect, including Abraham, what God was commanding Abraham to sacrifice on that day was not his son so much as it was his golden calf. And this is an important lesson we need to learn. You see, a false god, an idol, is not just for, found in the form of worshiping Molech or a false god. A true Christian, a true born again. Died in the wool Christian, can fall into idol worship. Case in point, when the Israelites were waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain, where he was meeting with God, they asked Aaron to make for, him, uh, make for them an image of God, which led to the golden calf incident. And later, when the snakes were killing the children of Israel, because they were once again being hard-hearted and hard-headed, God told Moses to make an image of a bronze snake lifted up on a pole and that any that would look on it would be saved. Numbers chapter 21. And all of this was the will of God for his people. Just as that bronze snake was the will of God. But then, a few generations later, we're told of this good king Hezekiah. How he followed after his father David who followed after the Lord. And we're told that he removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Those were pagan, false god-worships. But alongside of that, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. 2 Kings 18.5. They had taken the blessings of God and they had made an idol of it. They began to worship the things given to them by God. The experiences that they had because of God and not God himself. They had fallen into the satanic thinking that God alone is not worthy to be praised. It's the things that he gives you. They are worthy. And the Israelites did the same thing with the temple. Both of them. And even the disciples weren't safe from idol worship. In Acts 1, before the ascension, Jesus told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then he ascended, and the Holy Spirit did come. And they stayed in Jerusalem at the temple until persecution began. And then they fled at least some of them. It would take a complete overthrow and destruction of the temple for them to move away from worshiping that idol. What the Lord is desiring us to see here is that we all, all too often, can look to the things of God, even ministry itself, and begin to worship it. Oh, We may never bow down to it, may never sing praises to it, but we all too often can make it our God. I had this happen earlier in my life when we ran a boys' ranch because that ministry was impactful, it was meaningful, it was very open and public and very much locally known. And I lost my identity to it. I stopped having friends because they were my friends. And I started having friends who only cared about the ministry and what was happening there. All my life, my stories, my very identity was lost. And you're thinking, well, what's wrong with this? Because you lost your identity to the ministry of God. And you're right. I did. I lost it to the ministry of God. Not to God. And I was asked to lay that ministry down. And I wouldn't. So the Lord very graciously, in his mercy, ripped it from me. And when he did, he revealed to me just how much of an idolater I had become. I had stopped reading his word to find him, to know him. I had started reading his word in order to be able to teach others, to impart information to other people. No, what God was commanding Abraham to sacrifice here on this day was not his son. He wasn't commanding him to kill his son as much as he was commanding him to kill the idol that his son had become. This is one of those reasons why the second commandment is given to us. You shall not make any graven images because the desire to worship is instinctive in us. Since we are created in the image of God, We, at our very core desire, we need something to worship. And we all do worship something. And God knew that if a statue was created, even one that looked just like him, and you do realize that when Christ walked the earth, that there were people that were gifted enough to make a life-size, accurate picture, image of Christ. They could have done that. But God knew that if it happened, it wouldn't take very long for that idol factory of our hearts to begin to worship it and not him. And more importantly than that, any image, all images, and everything else, even an exact representation of Christ, all of them are less than God and none of them are worthy to be praised. Christian, you need to realize that you may have become an idolater. You may not like to admit it, but you may be idolizing your 401k, trusting it as your Savior, trusting that as long as I have that for my old age, I'm golden. Or you may be holding on to your spouse way too tight, looking for them to be your shield, your protector, your strength. Or you may be like Abraham and Sarah. And you may have placed your children, the gift that God has given you in the form of children. You may have placed them at the center of your life and not God. And in every instance that this is reality, God will, in his goodness and his grace, he will reveal this truth to you. And he will command you to place that person or that thing on the altar to sacrifice. And the reason for this is because I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. My praise to no carved idols, Isaiah 42.8. And for those that would think that a God that would say such a thing, that would do such a thing, that would command such a thing, that God that would be so insecure that he would say that I will not allow my glory or praise to be given to any idol person, that person cannot understand or know God. They think, who does he think he is to command such a thing? And why is he unwilling to share his glory or praise? And the reason for that is because of verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And more important than that, because of the reality of the Lamb that God the Father would provide as a true sacrifice for the sin of all of his children. That reality is told to us in verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. And a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from those in prison who sit in darkness. Because of this, he can command you that you place all of your false idols, all of your golden calves, and even anything or everything that you worship on that altar, Because only he is worthy. And only he is to be praised. And he can command you to lay all those things on that altar. Sacrifice those things that you are worshiping. Those things that you hold near and dear to your heart. Again, because of the reality that is told to us in Isaiah 52 and 53. Behold my servant. He shall act wisely. And he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, and his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which they had not been told them they see, that which they had not heard they understand. And what is it that these kings are told? What is it they had not heard? It is so amazing, so wonderful, that it has to be explained to us. And it is. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Abraham had a chosen, beloved, immaculate conception son, Isaac. There was adored, as did God. But the son of God was different than the son of Abraham. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from men who hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And the Son of God was not despised or rejected because people are just mean. And he wasn't picked on because he was weird. People hated him because he is God, because he rightly reflected God. And don't mistakenly think, I wouldn't have done that. I was not one of those people. I would not have despised him, I would not have rejected him because you did. And that truth is told to us in the next verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. God could command Abraham to lay his false idol of his son on that altar because he knew that nothing deserves, he knew that nothing deserves the honor or the glory that belongs to his son. That son that he laid on the altar, that son who was a willing sacrifice who laid himself on that altar, and the son who the father did not stay his hand of execution on. Because we know by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. He was killed. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands, and out of the anguish of his soul he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. And Because the father did not stay his hand on that day, because the son was the only true sacrifice that was sufficient to bear the wrath of the father, this is the only way that Abraham could be counted as righteous. And this is the only way that he could have the faith to actually follow through here. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Saints, God has the right to deal with you as he pleases. Because he alone is worthy. And he alone is to be praised. And we must lay our golden calves on that altar and sacrifice them there. Because they are not him. And he alone is worthy to be praised. And because you have been made righteous. Because he has given you the faith to believe. The eyes to see. The ears to hear. He will test your faith. And he will test your faith to demonstrate to you the reality that he will hold you fast. To demonstrate to you the absolute strength of the faith that he has given you and to reveal himself to you in a more intimate way. He will test you because he loves you and he knows that he is the only thing that will ever satisfy your soul and because he is holy because he is worthy because he has revealed himself to you because he has washed away your sins this is the reason why we can count it all joy when we face various trials. Because it's those trials that prove to you in tangible ways that your faith is truly of God and not a make-believe faith. Do you remember I was talking to you earlier about being crushed down hearts being ripped from your chest, and you continue to roll over and crawl back into the arms of God, it is then, then you know that the faith that he is giving you is real. Because if it wasn't, you'd walk away, as so many have. This is the love of God to his people. And we should rejoice and be glad in it because he's given us not only his faith, but he's given us his righteousness. That we can know that even though we have nothing in this world to count on, we have no reason in this world that we should actually have joy It's at those times when we find our joy is found in Him and Him alone. And then, and then, we can count it all joy. Let's pray.